where they put a monkey in a cage and either the monkey could have a steel monkey mom figure, which would give it food, or it could have a fluffy monkey that was the mom figure, but it didn't have food. And monkeys would rather die with having the closeness and warmth of a mother than food. So that we have all these primary urges to survive is actually superseded by our need for love and closeness and warmth and attachment. Welcome to Inside Your Head, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything related to your mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Christelle Roots, clinical psychologist and founder of Psych Central South Africa. In our very first episode today, I'll be chatting to Tova Steiner, a counseling psychologist at Psych Central Ravonia. Tova works with adult individuals and couples mainly, as well as parent-infant work. She has a great interest in attachment as well as trauma and has become our in-house go-to person when it comes to these topics. If you want to know more about Psych Central and Tova and the services we offer, visit our website on psychcentral.co.za. You can also follow us on social media where our handle is Psych Central South Africa for TikTok, Instagram, YouTube and Facebook. So let's maybe start off with what is attachment and why is it important? It's so interesting, you know, as you were saying this, I was actually thinking, what is my um, fascination with attachment? Mm -hmm. And one of my earliest memories is my mother's a social worker Mm -hmm. and she worked in adoption. And I remember in my school holidays, I must have been about five and going with her to the orphanage and playing with some of the babies and her telling me that they were being looked after by the nursing staff, but that no one was playing with them and that I could go and play with them. Mm. And so I guess I've always had this fascination with what attachment actually is. Mm. Um, and, And some of, I guess, the jargon around it is that it's actually a biological part of us that seeks closeness and safety with a primary caregiver Mm. by virtue of the fact that as mammals in the world, we are the one species that would not manage without our primary caregivers. If you think about, you know, the turtle who lays the eggs and then goes in the ocean and expects the turtles to find their way, we will not survive if we don't have someone looking after us. So it's a biological imperative and it's a way in which we attach to someone in order to survive. But what we are learning more and more and more is that it's actually a way in which we understand ourselves and the world based on this connection that we have with a primary caregiver. But so, like I feel like there's so many, or maybe I'm just following pages and stuff where Mm. people are talking about it, but there's a lot of people that think about attachment and that will refer to attachment, but kind of like not being sure it's this abstract concept of, of like, I'm not sure what it means exactly. I'm not sure where it leaves me or like what my attachment says about me. So I'm wondering maybe if you can just give us a bit of understanding regarding like different attachment styles or what does attachment actually mean for us psychologically? Okay, so that's great. Let's go into psychologically, which is actually fascinating that Freud um, focused very little on attachment. And it was actually post-World War II in John Bowlby, who was a psychiatrist and then became psychoanalyst. And one of the most harrowing parts of, I think, the story is that children who were brought into 
um, orphanages were actually their, their death certificate was signed as they came in because so many of the children were dying. And what he observed was that these children were not being held. They were being fed and they may have been changed, but no one was actually looking after them. And so he observed that the attachment with a primary caregiver is a need for survival. And I remember um, one of these studies, which would probably be cruelty to animals now, <laughs> but this um, famous study that I can't remember who did it, but um, where they put a monkey in a cage and either the monkey could have a steel monkey mom figure which would give it food, or it could have a fluffy monkey that was the mom figure, but it didn't have food. And monkeys would rather die wow. with having the closeness and warmth of a mother than food. So that we have all these primary urges to survive is actually superseded by our need for love and closeness and warmth and attachment. And so this was all formulated by John Bowlby. And it speaks to like our psyche and that we need closeness with this primary caregiver. Mm. Then after him came Mary Ainsworth, and this is empirical research done by moms and babies. And that is where she categorized different types of attachments. So if we could imagine a mom and a baby in a room with a stranger and a baby meaning like a toddler, and then the mom would leave the room. And based on how the child reacted and went back to normal play was how they categorized attachment. So this is how... When we talk about your attachment style, this is what we will be referring to. So if the mom left the room and the baby showed some distress, which would be appropriate because they were left in the room with the stranger, then the mother would return. And how the baby was in this moment. So if the child showed some distress and the mother was able to soothe the baby and then the child could go back to play, that was a secure attachment. Then anxious and ambivalent attachment would be different ways in which the child toddler baby would respond. So an anxious response would be that the child actually showed quite heightened levels of distress and wasn't easily soothed at all, either or at all. Ambivalent, which is quite a almost um, upsetting type of response would be that the child showed no response at all. So not overly anxious, not really needing the mother, an ambivalent response. But when they tested like the, the sweat on their skin or their heart rate, they showed that they actually were responding but didn't want to show it. Wow. And, and I think that that speaks to the way in which they were taught to respond. If the mother would come home or get upset about something, they were taught very easily to hide their, their visible emotion. And the last is disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment is particularly devastating because this would be a parent who is actually a source of pain or fear for the child. Mm -hmm. And so the child doesn't know what to do. They know that the parent is supposed to be my secure base and supposed to keep me safe, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also my source of fear, and so I don't actually know what to do. And when I explain this to patients, I'll often use the example in the Record Ralph movie where there's a little girl who's she gets a glitch, and it's almost like there's a glitch. The, the toddler didn't know what to do. Do I go towards you or do I go away from you? And I, there's actually like a glitch. I don't know what to do. But so it, it seems like it's such a big responsibility almost as a parent in terms of how you how you do this. And I can just like I'm thinking as you're speaking about how it, it's so affected by the parents' mental state as well and what they are able to do and how they respond to 
their own emotions. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to navigate when you are, especially maybe a new parent, but I think throughout like your child's childhood, how you, how you have this in mind and what you need to do to help them to develop a secure attachment. Absolutely. And like, what are the implications in terms of understanding if you are a parent and we were all children once, so our parents. So I think what you're saying is almost an olive branch if you are an adult and either if you are a parent or you were a child once to know that our parents were grappling with their own work stresses, life stresses, marital stresses, and there wasn't a way to always be that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what Winnicott speaks about the good enough mother and, and mother we refer to primary caregiver, the ability for most of the time to be like that. So if there is a time when a child brings their feeling to you and you can't respond because you're frustrated or you don't have capacity, that would also be okay because you would give them a sense of mom isn't always available, but I think it would speak to how often that happens. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was thinking an example brought in Alessandra Lemma's book where she talks about a child who's painting and drops paint all over their painting. And the mother who comes and takes the big experience that the child has, oh, you're so disappointed. That is so disappointing when that is all over your picture. Let's get a new piece of paper. And so she takes the child's big feeling and is able to break it down into smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. Or the mother who then says, you're always so careless. Look what you did. Now go to your room. Wow. And so the child learns, I can't bring my feeling to you. You, My big feeling is almost bigger than you in a way. Mm-hmm. And so if that happened, let's say once in a while, because the mother was having a hard day, but if that was the template for the relationship, then that would be not a secure attachment. But so that brings me to the next question, and that's how does trauma impact our attachment styles? Um. I think one of the things that I always think about, if we think of disorganized attachment, so let's just say the parent is the source of the trauma, then that's particularly impactful because you are supposed to be my secure base. So who do I go to if you are my source of fear? Mm -hmm. And that wish to keep thinking maybe this time my parent will be different to me. And if it's an outside trauma, And the parent isn't able to manage that experience for the child, the betrayal, I guess, of that. But also trauma has an experience of being alone in something and not being able to manage the experience. And um, Bessel van der Kolk uses this amazing example in in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, of children who were um, around the time when the Twin Towers in in 9-11. And they asked the children to draw pictures of what were they able to do in the moment, how were they able to get away from like the scary situation, and if they could imagine what they could do. And the kids who could imagine, like draw, some of them even drew like a magical big trampoline that they could jump on and jump on the trampoline and get away from what was happening. Those children were able to manage the trauma better. And what that speaks to is trauma takes away our ability to feel safe or create safety for ourselves. So the children who could then create safety, even in imagination and get away from the trauma, were then able to process it. But if you feel trapped and no one can help you and you can't even think of a way out of that trauma, then that's particularly impactful. Mm. I guess that that it's also... 
Yeah, it's a question that a lot of of my clients even sit with is, so if I don't have a secure attachment, Mm -hmm. then what do I do or how Mm -hmm. do I change that? And and I think that what you're saying now kind of ties in with that idea of maybe, yes, you can't change the experiences that you've had or you can't necessarily change how you were brought up or the relationship with your parents, but you can look at what gives you that sense of safety and what, what helps you to soothe yourself basically in, in relational distress. So what's your thoughts on, like, what do you do when you don't have a secure attachment as an adult? Right. So it becomes really tricky because we'll see this in played out with couples and how this manifests. I think the first part is knowing that because then you mm. can be aware of the cycle. And I think I'm, I'm just thinking of couples who I've seen recently and the difference when you're able to take responsibility for the fact that we each contribute to something within the cycle. So if I know this about myself, then I can be aware of what my partner's doing. And I can also, once my partner knows this about me, my partner may be able to know that when they do this, it triggers me into a certain state. And so some of the, I'm thinking of a particular like attachment workbook that speaks about that our attachment style is not fixed. I think it takes deep consciousness and a lot of work to be able to know if this was the way I was raised I'm going to be looking for this in my relationship. And every time my partner does something which would be innocuous to someone else, to me is going to trigger this attachment style. And so now I can work on trusting each time they do something differently. And I think it speaks to that idea of neuroplasticity, that if we have a certain pathway in our brain, deeply entrenched, Mm -hmm. every time I came to my parent, they responded in a certain way. And now every time with my partner, each time they respond differently, then a new neural pathway gets developed. But so it's about having a consistent new experience over and over again, which can be very uncomfortable for people. Very uncomfortable because it's brand new. What is this? I don't even know how to make sense of this. I've asked you for something and you give it back to me and then there's no repercussion for this almost. And then each time, and, and that's also then the partner. And I think that's a powerful work of couples work that you hold the potential to create healing for your partner, mm. but also massive responsibility once you know that. I think that that's, yes, that's like, as you say, it's such a big responsibility to know that that you also can really play into that attachment style, not like on a conscious level, Mm -hmm. but I guess that if it's happening over and over again, a lot of couples might feel like, but I am who I am, so I'm not going to change. But we have an impact on each other, whether we like it or not. And it's something that will will impact both people's attachment style. Absolutely. And it just made me think like, you know, uh, Dr. Becky, um, who, who's from that, um, her blog is Good Inside. She speaks about that um, sports players, CEOs all have like a coaching team. And it's so interesting that within like social, emotional, psychological stuff, we don't always think that we need a team. Mm-hmm. It's often put down. It's like, oh, this new parenting stuff or this new couple stuff. But if these are the most important, some of the most important parts of our lives why aren't we open to the fact that we should be looking for more coaching in these, mm. in our couple work, in our parenting? If we know this, the more we know. And I know that I think the flip side of that is that Instagram is like a, you know, sensory information overload. But to find places where we get coaching, because I don't know why we think by virtue of the fact that we become adults, we should know this stuff. 
And we aren't supposed to know it. We're not supposed to always know how to be in relationship, especially if you know you didn't have a secure attachment. We aren't supposed to know how to be parents with secure attachments if we didn't have them. But there are resources out there. Mm. I always also think that there's there's so much power in acceptance or like there's so much that we can get from accepting ourselves. And I think that a lot of times we, we're stuck in this struggle with, I shouldn't have these problems. I shouldn't be right. sitting with this as an adult. I should be able to deal with things differently. And there's so much relief that comes with the acceptance of, maybe I have an anxious attachment style, or maybe I have a disorganized attachment style, and maybe relationships are going to be a lot of work in that regard or I am going to experience some difficult things and I need to be patient with myself that I need to get through them um which I think is is so hard for a lot of people because we we want to know like we need to do something about it we need to follow steps Mm -hmm. one two and three and then it's going to be better so a lot of times people are kind of like disappointed when you say that the the solution is often in not doing so much about it but managing it differently, of course. Mm-hmm. I, I love that idea. I feel like locating why we respond in a certain way and then wanting to maybe do it differently, but starting off in that point of like, it makes sense. It makes mm-hmm. sense that if my partner comes home late, I would take it really personally. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking though, Toby, as you're speaking, that it's also... I think very daunting for a lot of people to work on attachment or to even bring it up, let's say if they're in therapy, because I wonder if it also means that you have to really acknowledge the pain and hurt that you've had from your parents, for example. I know that a lot of my clients kind of get defensive or they kind of resist talking about their parents because they don't want to do the typical cliche, we're going to blame our parents for everything in therapy. And that's not necessarily what therapy is about, but there's, it's so important to be able to go back and say, let's understand the impact that these relationships had on you. But a lot of people then realize for the first time as an adult, actually, my parents provided for me, but they didn't necessarily... Um, show up emotionally or they left me quite uncertain and feeling quite scared or like things were very inconsistent and that had an impact on me and and then it's difficult to make sense of the same parent that you really thought gave you a good upbringing is also the same parent that that impacted your relationships currently and how you function it's so true because I think there's something about when people say yeah no I had a good childhood and it was great I don't actually want to delve into it deeper. And I think the word you used is adult because as children, we see our parents as omnipotent. They can, Mm. for the most part, do no wrong. They know what is good and bad. They know what's right and wrong. And as babies, I mean, if we're cold, they, they bring us a blanket. They know that we are, there's a sense that they have a sense of, you know, what we need and they can do no wrong. And then Uh, We become teenagers and we think they don't know anything at all. (laughs) And then the adult is being able to see our parents as both. And so I think that that first part is like, oh, it's quite daunting. I don't actually want to have to, you know, unpack the stuff that may not have been as good. But that keeps us quite stuck in a child way of engaging with our parents and our childhood. As opposed to being adults, which is the level of I can be in control. I can make decisions. If I wasn't safe as a child, now I can be. So mm-hmm. I, the, the fear around unpacking it is very real because it means you have to actually evolve through a process of 
your parents falling off the pedestal, seeing all the stuff they didn't do, and then somehow coming to this adult view of them as whole human beings who did right and wrong. Yeah. I think it's also difficult even to see ourselves as whole adult human beings who who do right and wrong and who's not necessarily either or. So it's, it's especially tricky. I'm wondering though, how do you think um, or how can people maybe make sense of how attachment impacts our mental health or mm-hmm. our psychological functioning? Because I guess people are not necessarily going to come to therapy and say, I think I have attachment <laughs> problems. Um, what might they be presenting with or experiencing? So when I think of attachment, I think of how do we view ourselves and how do we view others and how do we view ourselves in relation to others? How do we view the world and how do we view ourselves in the world? Because every single tiny interaction we have with our primary caregiver at the beginning is telling us that. It's telling us about ourselves. It's telling us about relationships. It's telling us about the world. And so when we're at a place and and. I mean, I would love to do some empirical research on what age it happens, but I think like we have these ways of navigating the world that we learned as children. And at some point, I think people arrive in therapy and kind of go, this thing used to work, it doesn't work anymore. Mm. And I, and it used to be my way of navigating the world, it's not working. I keep trying it, but stuff isn't working. And so there would be a way in which I keep getting into these same relationships. In my workplace, I'm always the one who this happens to. When there's a pattern between and, and, and a view of self, how I see myself as never good enough, those would speak to all the ways in which we our attachment was impacted. And so that's why actually therapy is so powerful on so many levels. But there's something about I was even reading up something about the frame, and the frame is the, you know, the time and the place and Some people may find it quite rigid, which would also be information. But I guess this idea around the fact that this person who's so predictable, who gives me this holding safe space, helps me reprocess those relationships within this therapeutic frame and within this relationship where I get to bring in my anger and my frustration and it be okay. And so then I can go out in the world and say, I have a template for it. And the template is that with my therapist, I get to be whoever I want to be or bring some really, you know, uncomfortable feelings, um, anger, envy, the feelings that we don't like to talk about with friends. And then it, it becomes normalized in this relationship that the holding relationship with the mother and baby, it, like if we think of the paint uh, going all over the picture, something happens within the therapeutic space. So I get to give you my big feeling and you get to normalize it for me or you get to contextualize it for me much like the mother and baby. And so it sounds strange to think of your therapist as your mother, male or female, but there's something about that experience with a therapist that's the holding environment. And so we also get to in some way heal that initial relationship with our primary caregiver, I think. Mm. I think it's so it's so beautiful and important what you're saying, Toby, because I think that that's what a lot of people struggle to really understand about therapy is I, I always think like it's not necessarily about what you say in therapy, but it's about the experience and about the relationship. And so a lot of people might even get frustrated with we're talking about the same thing or I feel like things are not changing, but it's actually about that relationship that you're building. And, and it's so important that there can be a lot of repair 
just in your experience with other people. But that that also makes me think about things that I'm just referring to things that people have told me before mm. or that, that they would ask me. And a lot of, of people that's been in toxic relationships will tell me that they kind of feel like they had a good attachment style or secure attachment. And then after this, the trauma of this relationship, they feel like now they're sitting with a lot of anxiety or they're feeling now all of a sudden they feel quite uncertain and ambivalent or things are very inconsistent. Mm. And they, there's this push and pull of I was vulnerable and someone really hurt me. And so now I don't want to be like dependent again. So I want to stay independent and never be vulnerable. And so I, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of that or or if it would be kind of like just highlighting your existing attachment pattern. It's so interesting. I think I would think many things. One is there is relationship trauma. Like in the relationship, there may be traumas that impact the relationship. But I would still say, why were you attracted to that? Mm. You know, there's many people in the world that you could have been attracted to or have formed a relationship with that person somehow drew you towards them and there was something there that you needed to heal in yourself and that would speak to something going on there for you so it may be that you had a secure attachment but what what are the details of that relationship how did you what did you learn there and you may have learned that your value comes from giving and so you may find someone that you almost are always rescuing because that's where your value is so there would still be parts to unpack even if you had a secure relationship secure attachment mm. if you're in toxic relationships there's something else that would need unpacking yeah I think it's it's so multi-layered so mm. I guess obviously as you say if you also then have a secure attachment you would be less likely to land up in that toxic relationship um it's not saying that it's your fault you landed up there but I think that it's something that would you would navigate differently or your boundaries would be different. Um, I'm just thinking now, I'm throwing a, a bunch of questions mm. at you that I didn't necessarily ask you to prepare, but like what's your thoughts on how that impacts your boundaries? Because boundaries is also this buzzword that everyone is talking about, like you should have boundaries. And I, I wonder how attachment and boundaries mm. also go hand in hand. I just had a thought around... Um a baby who's overtired and starts to rub their eyes and starts to like arch their back a bit and starts to niggle. And the mother who then picks it, the baby up and bounces the baby on her knee and the baby starts to get more distressed. And so the mother, um, you know, brings out a whole bunch of toys and now the baby is past sensory overload and is in, in something as simple as that with all her best intentions in the world, the child may feel as if there was a boundary crossing in that sense of like, I was trying to send you a message, you didn't get it. And feeling like this mother's attention and the overstimulation as, and not knowing what to do. And so that was one thought about like how mm. boundaries could be affected. But also I think the more I learn about what boundaries mean, I think it's about learning to say, this is what I need for me. And I think we get quite uncomfortable with boundaries because it feels like I'm saying, this is what you need to do. Mm. And so I'm quite uncomfortable with saying, you have to do this thing. I'm more comfortable saying, here is what's okay for me. But where did you learn that? Where did you learn to say, here's my boundary? And I, I, I keep thinking of this way in which children are expected to give, you know, um, 
the the geriatric family members extra kisses and extra hugs and how uncomfortable that must be mm-hmm. this like you know sweet wrinkly granny with the bluish hair and the mole and like <laughs> maybe she's quite like scary looking mm. and go give auntie whoever this big hug and so in that moment you're also taught I actually have a boundary and I have a feeling and I don't know that I can honor that because I'm told to go do this thing and Dr. Becky also uses a brilliant example of a little girl sitting on her mom's lap at a birthday party and the mom says go all the other kids are happy all the other kids are having fun go have fun go go don't stay here don't stay here with all the moms and so she learns this feeling I have which if I honoured, would actually be just sit here with the moms because I don't feel safe. Mm. I'm taught to squash it and just go out there and be with everyone, even if I'm not okay. And so I don't learn to honour, this is what I'm feeling inside of me, and then it's well received. So do we learn to say, I don't, like I'm in my body, I know how I feel, this isn't okay for me, here's my boundary, and the world goes, well done, or the world says, what is that? But I think it again goes back to how your how the parent or the primary caregiver then navigates their own boundaries. Um, because I'm just thinking, obviously, also having a, a little baby, I'm thinking, so should I just be there unconditionally all the time? And I, I guess it's it's important, well, in my understanding of what you're saying, it's important to be able to communicate boundaries with your child while they always know that you are there for them and that, that you'll hold them and that you can contain their emotions, that you you can digest it for them, it's not necessarily saying in order to have a secure attachment, you must just allow your child to have all of their feelings all the time and like just do with it what they want. They can have the feelings, but not necessarily, like it's not a free for all. And if you have boundaries with your child, then they're going to have problems with their attachment style, I guess. Absolutely. And the thing is, like mentalization is this part of being a primary caregiver. Can I imagine what it must be like? Mm. Like if a door slams, there's three responses you could have for a toddler and for a baby. Like a six-month-old, the door slams and they start to cry. You could say to them, that was scary. You weren't expecting that. Even though they don't understand what you're saying, they get that you are reacting to that experience and that you can imagine for a six-month-old a door slamming is very scary. And then you could say that to a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. You weren't expecting that. So what I'm saying to you is you had a big feeling. You can't make sense of it. But I'm just going to explain to you why your heart is racing like it is. Mm. And so it doesn't mean now that you got a fright, you get to, you know, throw some things off the table and do whatever you want with that feeling. But that that feeling is valid. And I get it because I can put myself in your shoes. I didn't get a fright. I watched the wind. I knew the door was going to slam and I was expecting it. Mm. But I could just say to you, you weren't expecting that. And that would mean... I can go into what your experience is like. And I think that is a relationship cue because often when people are in couples therapy, the first thing we'll try take out of the couples therapy is the court of law. It doesn't matter what's right or wrong. Mm. It's actually just about what the other person is feeling. And I remember one of the, um, from Friends when Phoebe's taking notes between um, – Chandler and Monica in a relationship and she makes like a funny name for both of them which sounds exactly like Chandler and Monica but she's writing a book and they're supposed to be going out for dinner and like one said seven and one said 7.30 and they don't know who's right and they ask her and she reads it in this novel that she's writing about Chandler and Monica and one said seven and one said 7.30 so they were both right and they were both wrong 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It was that the other one was frustrated, the other one was waiting, and the other one was rushing. So if we could navigate that in relationships based on that our parent could have said, there's nothing to be scared about. That would be right, maybe, but the child's experience was to get a fright. Mm-hmm. So imagine that would be mentalizing for your partner as an adult. How do I imagine what it must be like for them? It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. I think it's it's also just significant what you're saying because I think people often feel like they can only work on attachment-related problems when they are in a relationship. And it's, it's not necessarily only in relationships. Like you might be experiencing this with friends, you might be experiencing this with colleagues, you might be experiencing it with your family. So it's really something that would play out in, in a lot of different ways where maybe you are experiencing like, it's, it's this about who's right and wrong and mm-hmm. am I following the rules? Am I doing what this person is expecting of me? Um, so it's, it's really so multi-layered. And I'm just thinking like it's about reparenting yourself to a large extent because we keep on referring back to the baby and the, the mother or the primary caregiver. And, and a lot of people are not necessarily in that position, but they, like I, the other day, I told one of my clients and I think she, she thought that I'm a bit odd um, because I said, like, go and follow this page. I think it was Big Little Feelings on Instagram, but she doesn't have a child. She's not like, <laughs> she, she's n- n- nowhere near thinking about anything of that. But but I said to her, it, it's so helpful to, if you look at how they advise for parents to respond to emotions of kids, it would be helpful for you to start responding to yourself in that way. So yes, you don't have a toddler that you have to raise and you have to mirror these feelings or reflect them and contain and kind of help with those things, but you might be able to actually apply a lot of those things to yourself. But it's a it's tricky having to do that for yourself and not having someone do it for you. I think that awareness is huge. And in, and in psychology, that idea of transactional analysis, where we all have a parent, adult and child within all of us. And it's very clear when we refer to this idea maybe of someone who's quite restrictive with their eating. And so the child who's this unruly child who'll just do whatever they want. They need the harsh parent to keep saying to their child, you know, their inner child, be in check careful what you eat all the time. And we can hear that in ourselves. We can hear that in a dialogue. And you're saying it doesn't only manifest in romantic relationships, just the way we are in the world. Mm. If we walking up the stairs and we drop all our files, what's the first thought? Like, you're such an idiot. You know, instead of, you know, what would you say to a child who did that? Oh, everyone makes mistakes. It's We can just pick this up. You didn't see the step. How would we... and I don't know, you know, one of these sites also, one of these Instagram accounts about the way we talk to ourselves. We would never even, I mean, if we, the vitriol we send ourselves, if we had to say it aloud, some, I mean, people would turn around and say, who are you talking to like that? Mm-hmm. So that's the, re, you know, reparent the feeling. Like you have a feeling. And so what happens? You immediately say to yourself, you're ridiculous. You're overreacting. It's not as big as that. Everyone always does this to me. That's the part that you could reparent. Mm, definitely. Tavi, um, is there anything else on your mind about this topic or things that you, you feel are important to discuss or for people to know? I think this like new revolution has two paths to it. And the one I think is uh, Laurie Gottlieb in her book, maybe she talked to someone, says that 
insight is the booby prize of therapy. And I think sometimes with all this knowledge, we have the one side of the coin, which is it's so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I feel like, where do I start? How do I do this? There's so much I need to work on. And who do I follow? I mean, I'm on Instagram the whole day and I'm, I don't know where to go. That like very, very overwhelming part. And, And I guess that for me is like, pick your top three accounts that you really feel like are, are valuable for you. And I think the holistic psychologist is amazing. She is. She is amazing, she is amazing. and very, very practical. Mm. And I, I love Dr. Becky for parenting stuff. And I think that it comes up, like you're saying, mm. if you're reparenting your inner child. And then the other part is the part of adult responsibility that we get to take in terms of why aren't certain things working out anymore? Why is my life in the place I don't want to be in. It's a very privileged res- response. But if you have a way to get into therapy, and you know, often people will say, I don't know what I'm going to uncover there. Yeah. And that's quite daunting. Mm-hmm. What what dark, dark secrets when I've said my childhood was okay, am I going to unpack? But what I can say is the process is full of vulnerability and sometimes a vulnerability hangover But I think that the freedom and lightness that comes with getting yourself into therapy or finding a space to really process stuff that two or three days later where you feel like I'm not carrying this load anymore, this makes sense for me. That is the other part of the, the other side of the coin of like, don't keep staying in your rut, staying in this place where my relationships aren't working, I'm not happy at work. Not that therapy is the magic cure, but that finding deep insight into yourself is often a way to navigate the world differently. Mm. I think it's uh, like, I love that term vulnerability hangover. I think it's, that Brown, yeah. it's something that a lot of people experience. And I think that it's, it's daunting to think of therapy and obviously we are pro therapy. <laughs> <Being laughs> we don't have a we don't agenda have, here. Yeah, we, we, we're not biased at all, mm-hmm. but I think, um, it's about really just understanding how valuable it is to invest in yourself. And a lot of people will often only present to therapy when it's kind of like the the rock bottom or where they feel like they have no other choice. And, and when they're out of that crisis, they don't necessarily continue with therapy. And I think that that's why it's so valuable to stay beyond that crisis point, because that's where you can really start to unpack these things and understand these different parts of yourself. And learn how you can navigate that differently. Because when you're in a crisis, you're just thinking about how do I not feel this way? You're not necessarily able to really look at, okay, but so this is, I first have the understanding of this is the the relational traumas and these are the things that's happened that has affected me to land up where I am. But now I'm looking at what does that mean? And and that's a, it's it's a, a very bitter pill to swallow that actually I need to do something about this or actually I need to change and I guess it's very important for people to just understand also it's not a like okay now with awareness you know now you need to be able to change it you're gonna be aware of these let's say your attachment style and how you tend to be in a relationship and you're gonna go back and you're gonna do exactly those things over and over again and and having real grace with yourself in terms of it's gonna take a lot of time to start doing things differently in relationships and it's going to take a lot of time to feel different um it can't just be a this is what I've been used to now I'm changing the behavior and then I'm going to just feel better and I'm going to continue to do this thing 
Yeah, I think I think one of the tricky parts of being in 2022 is that we think so many things are something that can be, you know, find the problem and the solution. And there's like a linearity to viewing the world. And I, I think that that's one of the hard parts about therapy mm-hmm. is that it often is staying in the process. And like you're saying, I mean, the oxymoron part about therapy is that it takes quite a robust sense of self. So if you're arriving when you're in crisis, like you're saying, stick it out because the the real deep stuff is quite hard to unpack when you're in mm-hmm. a hard place. And it's it's when, when therapy unravels all this stuff that you've actually been holding, but the other parts of your life feel more secure, it's, it's more doable. But even in the cases when it's not, it's so that the other parts of your life then become more secure. And so the secure attachment part of therapy is the potential for the secure attachment that you have with yourself and with the world afterwards. So, yeah, we're doing a little punt for therapy, but I really, (laughs) really just seeing people in therapy and being in therapy, Mm. I think it's, it's a way to just, you know, understand ourselves and then act consciously. Like you're saying, even if you keep doing that thing 10 times afterwards, knowing why and how. I think, yeah, as you're saying, people might kind of get the feeling that we are here (laughs) to promote therapy. But I think that that's part of just the advice maybe um, or or guidance in terms of if you want to work on your attachment style, if you realize that you have a lot of difficulty in relationships and how you relate to people, that therapy is just really a relationship that has the opportunity to repair. And it is a, a relationship that has the opportunity to help you unfold and really digest and understand these parts of yourself. And I think it's really challenging to do that by yourself. And a lot of people, like especially with social media and there's so much um, resources out there. Like I think I never realized that TikTok has so much about mental health. I'm like, I'm still from really? the, yes. the, I want to say the generation that's not on TikTok, Um <laughs> But there's so much on there, but it's about like just seeing this information, but not necessarily knowing what to do with it. So we can identify these things, but being able to change it really, really is difficult for most people. And so just having a space where you can understand this multi-layered abstract concept of attachment can be really, really helpful. Sophie, thanks so much for for chatting to me. I always feel like I learn so much from you. Thank you. And I always feel like I need to go and read more books (laughs) after I've spoken to you because you like quote everyone everywhere. Um, But yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Christelle. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow or subscribe on your desired platform. I will be so grateful if you're willing to take the time to rate this podcast so that you can continue to learn more about various topics related to your mental health and well-being.